20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, Chapter 45, A Mass Execution. The way of describing this unlooked-for scene, the history of the Patriot ship, told at first so coldly, and the emotion with which this strange man pronounced the last words, the name of the Avenger, the significance of which could not escape me, all impressed itself deeply on my mind. My eyes did not leave the captain, who, with his hand stretched out to sea, was watching with a glowing eye the glorious wreck. Perhaps I was never to know who he was, from whence he came, or where he was going to. But I saw the man move, and depart from the savant. It was no common misanthropy which had shut Captain Nemo and his companions within the Nautilus, but a hatred, either monstrous or sublime, which time could never weaken. Did this hatred still seek for vengeance? The future would soon teach me that. But the Nautilus was rising slowly to the surface of the sea, and the form of the Avenger disappeared by degrees from my sight. Soon a slight rolling told me that we were in the open air. At that moment a dull boom was heard. I looked at the captain. He didn't move. Captain, I said, he didn't answer. I left him and mounted the platform. Conseil and the Canadian were already there. Where did that sound come from? I asked. It was a gunshot, replied Ned Land. I looked in the direction of the vessel I'd already seen. It was nearing the Nautilus, and we could see that it was putting on steam. It was within six miles of us. What's that ship, Ned? By its rigging and the height of its lower masts, said the Canadian, I bet she's a ship of war. May it reach us, and if necessary, sink this cursed Nautilus. Friend Ned, replied Conseil, what harm can it do to the Nautilus? Can it attack beneath the waves? Can it cannonade us at the bottom of the sea? Tell me, Ned, I said, can you recognize what country she belongs to? The Canadian knitted his eyebrows, dropped his eyelids, and screwed up the corners of his eyes, and for a few moments fixed a piercing look upon the vessel. No, sir, he replied. I cannot tell what nation she belongs to, for she shows no colors. But I can declare she's a man of war, for a long pennant flutters from her main mast. For a quarter of an hour we watched the ship which was steaming towards us. I couldn't, however, believe that she could see the Nautilus from that distance, and still less that she could know what this submarine engine was. Soon the Canadian informed me that she was a large, armored, two-decker ram. A thick black smoke was pouring from her two funnels. Her closely furled sails were stooped to her yards. She hoisted no flag at her mizzen peak. The distance prevented us from distinguishing the colors of her pennant, which floated like a thin ribbon. She advanced rapidly. If Captain Nemo allowed her to approach, there was a chance of salvation for us. Sir, said Ned Land, if that vessel passes within a mile of us, I shall throw myself into the sea, and I should advise you to do the same. I didn't reply to the Canadian's suggestion, but continued watching the ship. Whether English, French, American, or Russian, she would be sure to take us in if we could only reach her. Presently, a white smoke burst from the forepart of the vessel. Some seconds later, the water, agitated by the fall of a heavy body, splashed the stern of the Nautilus, 
and shortly afterwards, a loud explosion struck my ear. What? They're firing at us? I exclaimed. So please you, sir, said Ned, they've recognized the unicorn, and they're firing at us. But, I exclaimed, surely they can see that there are men in the case. It's perhaps because of that, replied Ned Land, looking at me. A whole flood of light burst upon my mind. Doubtless, they knew now how to believe the stories of the pretended monster. No doubt, on board the Abraham Lincoln, when the Canadians struck it with the harpoon, Commander Farragut had recognized in the supposed narwhal a submarine vessel, more dangerous than a supernatural cetacean. Yes, it must have been so. And on every sea they were now seeking this engine of destruction. Terrible indeed, if, as we supposed, Captain Nemo employed the Nautilus in works of vengeance. On the night when we were imprisoned in that cell, in the midst of the Indian Ocean, had he not attacked some vessel? The man buried in the Coral Cemetery, had he not been a victim to the shock caused by the Nautilus? Yes, I repeat it, it must be so. One part of the mysterious existence of Captain Nemo had been unveiled, and if his identity had not been recognized, at least the nations united against him were no longer hunting a chimerical creature, but a man who'd vowed a deadly hatred against them. All the formidable paths rose before me. Instead of meeting friends on board the approaching ship, we could only expect pitiless enemies. But the shot rattled about us. Some of them struck the sea and ricocheted, losing themselves in the distance. But none touched the Nautilus. The vessel was not more than three miles from us. In spite of the serious cannonade, Captain Nemo didn't appear on the platform. But if one of the conical projectiles had struck the shell of the Nautilus, it would have been fatal. The Canadian then said, Sir, we must do all we can to get out of this dilemma. Let us signal them. They'll then perhaps understand that we're honest folks. Ned Land took his handkerchief to wave in the air, but he'd scarcely displayed it when he was struck down by an iron hand and fell, in spite of his great strength, upon the deck. Fool! exclaimed the captain. Do you wish to be pierced by the spur of the Nautilus before it's hurled at this vessel? Captain Nemo was terrible to hear. He was still more terrible to see. His face was deadly pale, with a spasm at his heart. For an instant, it must have ceased to beat. His pupils were fearfully contracted. He didn't speak. He roared, as with his body thrown forward, he wrung the Canadian shoulders. Then leaving him and turning to the ship of war, whose shot was still raining around him, he exclaimed with a powerful voice, Ah, ship of an accursed nation, you know who I am. I don't want your colors to know you by. Look, I'll show you mine. And on the forepart of the platform, Captain Nemo unfurled a black flag, similar to the one he had placed at the South Pole. At that moment, a shot struck the shell of the Nautilus obliquely without piercing it and rebounding near the captain, was lost in the sea. He shrugged his shoulders, and addressing me, said shortly, Go down, you and your companions, go down. Sir, I cried, are you going to attack this vessel? Sir, I'm going to sink it. You will not do that. I shall do it, he replied coldly, and I advise you not to judge me, sir. Fate has shown you what you ought not to have seen. 
The attack has begun. Go down. What is this vessel? You don't know? Very well. So much the better. Its nationality to you, at least, will be a secret. Go down. We could but obey. About fifteen of the sailors surrounded the captain, looking with implacable hatred at the vessel nearing them. One could feel that the same desire of vengeance animated every soul. I went down at the moment another projectile struck the Nautilus, and I heard the captain exclaim, Strike, mad vessel! Shower your useless shot, and then you'll not escape the spur of the Nautilus. But it's not here that you shall perish. I would not have your ruins mingle with those of the Avenger. I reached my room. The captain and his second had remained on the platform. The screw was set in motion, and the Nautilus, moving with speed, was soon beyond the reach of the ship's guns. But the pursuit continued, and Captain Nemo contented himself with keeping his distance. About four in the afternoon, being no longer able to contain my impatience, I went to the central staircase. The panel was open, and I ventured onto the platform. The captain was still walking up and down with an agitated step. He was looking at the ship, which was five or six miles to leeward. He was going round it like a wild beast and drawing it eastward. He allowed them to pursue, but he didn't attack. Perhaps he still hesitated. I wished to mediate once more, but I had scarcely spoken when Captain Nemo imposed silence, saying, I am the law and I am the judge. I am the oppressed and there is the oppressor. Through him I have lost all that I loved, cherished, and venerated. Country, wife, children, father, and mother. I saw all perish. All that I hate is there. Say no more. I cast a last look at the man of war, which was putting on steam, and rejoined Ned and Conseil. We will fly, I exclaimed. Good, said Ned. What is this vessel? I don't know, but whatever it is, it'll be sunk before night. In any case, it's better to perish with it than be made accomplices in a retaliation of justice of which we cannot judge. That's my opinion, too, said Ned, coolly. Let's wait for tonight. Night arrived. Deep silence reigned on board. The compass showed that the Nautilus had not altered its course. It was on the surface, rolling slightly. My companions and I resolved to fly when the vessel should be near enough either to hear us or to see us for the moon, which would be full in two or three days, shone brightly. Once on board the ship, if we could not prevent the blow which threatened it, we could, at least we would, do all that circumstances would allow. Several times I thought the Nautilus was preparing for attack, but Captain Nemo contented himself with allowing his adversary to approach and then fled once more before it. Part of the night passed without any incident. We watched the opportunity for action. We spoke little, for we were too much moved. Ned Land would have thrown himself into the sea, but I forced him to wait. According to my idea, the Nautilus would attack the ship at her waterline, and then it would not be possible, but easy, to fly. At three in the morning, full of uneasiness, I mounted the platform. Captain Nemo hadn't left it. He was standing at the forepart near his flag, which a slight breeze displayed above his head. He did not take his eyes from the vessel. The intensity of his look seemed to attract and fascinate and 
draw it onward more surely than if he'd been towing it. The moon was then passing the meridian. Jupiter was rising in the east. Amid this peaceful scene of nature, sky and ocean rivaled each other in tranquility. The sea, offering to the orbs of night, the finest mirror they could ever have in which to reflect their image. As I thought of the deep calm of these elements, compared with all those passions brooding imperceptibly within the Nautilus, I shuddered. The vessel was within two miles of us. It was ever nearing that phosphorescent light which showed the presence of the Nautilus. I could see its green and red lights and its white lantern hanging from the large foremast. An indistinct vibration quivered through its rigging, showing that the furnaces were heated to the uttermost. Sheaves of sparks and red ashes flew from the funnels, shining in the atmosphere like stars. I remained thus until six in the morning, without Captain Nemo noticing me. The ship stood about a mile and a half from us, and with the first dawn of day the firing began afresh. The moment could not be far off when, the Nautilus attacking its adversary, my companions and myself should forever leave this man. I was preparing to go down to remind them when the second mounted the platform, accompanied by several sailors. The Captain Nemo either did not or would not see them. Some steps were taken which might be called the signal for action. They were very simple. The iron balustrade around the platform was lowered, and the lantern and pilot cages were pushed within the shell until they were flush with the deck. The long surface of the steel cigar no longer offered a single point to check its maneuvers. I returned to the saloon. The Nautilus still floated. Some streaks of light were filtering through the liquid beds. With the undulations of the waves, the windows were brightened by the red streaks of the rising sun, and this dreadful day of the 2nd of June had dawned. At five o'clock, the log showed that the speed of the Nautilus was slackening and I knew that it was allowing them to draw nearer. Besides, the reports were heard more distinctly, and the projectiles, laboring through the ambient water, were extinguished with a strange hissing noise. My friends, I said, the moment is come. One grasp of the hand, and may God protect us. Ned Land was resolute, Conseil calm, myself so nervous that I knew not how to contain myself. We all passed into the library, but the moment I pushed the door opening to the central staircase, I heard the upper panel close sharply. The Canadian rushed on to the stairs, but I stopped him. A well-known hissing noise told me that the water was running into the reservoirs, and in a few minutes the Nautilus was some yards beneath the surface of the waves. I understood the maneuver. It was too late to act. The Nautilus did not wish to strike at the impenetrable cuirass, but below the waterline, where the metallic covering no longer protected it. We were again imprisoned, unwilling witnesses of the dreadful drama that was preparing. We had scarcely time to reflect. Taking refuge in my room, we looked at each other without speaking. A deep stupor had taken hold of my mind. Thought seemed to stand still. I was in that painful state of expectation, preceding a dreadful report. I waited. I listened. Every sense was merged in that of hearing. The speed of the Nautilus was accelerated. It was preparing to rush. The whole ship trembled. Suddenly I screamed. I felt the shock, but comparatively light. 
I felt the penetrating power of the steel spur. I heard the rattlings and scrapings. But the Nautilus, carried along by its propelling power, passed through the mass of the vessel like a needle through sailcloth. I could stand it no longer. Mad, out of my mind, I rushed from my room into the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, mute, gloomy, implacable. He was looking through the port panel. A large mass cast a shadow on the water, and that it might lose nothing of her agony, the Nautilus was going down into the abyss with her. Ten yards from me I saw the open shell, through which the water was rushing with the noise of thunder, then the double line of guns and netting. The bridge was covered with black, agitated shadows. The water was rising. The poor creatures were crowding the ratlines, clinging to the masts, struggling under the water. It was a human ant heap overtaken by the sea. Paralyzed, stiffened with anguish, my hair standing on end, with eyes wide open, panting without breath and without voice, I too was watching. An irresistible attraction glued me to the glass. Suddenly, an explosion took place. The compressed air blew up her decks as if the magazines had caught fire. Then the unfortunate vessel sank more rapidly. Her topmast, laden with victims, now appeared. Then her spars, bending under the weight of men. And last of all, the top of her mainmast. Then the dark mass disappeared. And with it, the dead crew drawn down by the strong eddy. I turned to Captain Nemo, that terrible avenger, a perfect archangel of hatred, was still looking. When all was over, he turned to his room, opened the door, and entered. I followed him with my eyes. On the end wall, beneath his heroes, I saw the portrait of a woman, still young, and two little children. Captain Nemo looked at them for some moments, stretched his arms towards them, and kneeling down, burst into deep sobs. Chapter 46 The Last Words of Captain Nemo The panels had closed on this dreadful vision, but light had not returned to the saloon. All was silence and darkness within the Nautilus. At wonderful speed, a hundred feet beneath the water, it was leaving this desolate spot. Whither was it going? To the north or south? Where was the man flying to after such dreadful retaliation? I had returned to my room, where Ned and Conseil had remained silent enough. I felt an insurmountable horror for Captain Nemo. Whatever he had suffered at the hands of these men, he had no right to punish thus. He had made me, if not an accomplice, at least a witness of his vengeance. At eleven, the electric light reappeared. I passed into the saloon. It was deserted. I consulted the different instruments. The Nautilus was flying northward at the rate of 25 miles an hour, now on the surface and now 30 feet below it. On taking the bearings by the chart, I saw that we were passing the mouth of the Manche and that our course was hurrying us toward the northern seas at a frightful speed. That night we had crossed 200 leagues of the Atlantic the shadows fell, and the sea was covered with darkness until the rising of the moon. I went to my room, but couldn't sleep. I was troubled with dreadful nightmare. The horrible scene of destruction was continually before my eyes. From that day, 
Who could tell into what part of the North Atlantic basin the Nautilus would take us? Still with unaccountable speed. Still in the midst of these northern fogs. Would it touch at Spitzbergen or on the shores of Nova Zembla? Should we explore those unknown seas, the White Sea, the Sea of Kara, the Gulf of Obi, the archipelago of Liarov, and the unknown coast of Asia? I could not say. I could no longer judge of the time that was passing. The clocks had been stopped on board. It seemed, as in polar countries, that night and day no longer followed their regular course. I felt myself being drawn into that strange region where the foundered imagination of Edgar Poe roamed at will. Like the fabulous Gordon Pym, at every moment I expected to see that veiled human figure of larger proportions than those of any inhabitant of the earth thrown across the cataract which defends the approach to the pole. I estimated, though perhaps I may be mistaken, I estimated this adventurous course of the Nautilus to have lasted fifteen or twenty days, and I know not how much longer it might have lasted had it not been for the catastrophe which ended the voyage. Of Captain Nemo I saw nothing whatever now, nor of his second. Not a man of the crew was visible for an instant. The Nautilus was almost incessantly under water. When we came to the surface to renew the air, the panels opened and shut mechanically. There were no more marks on the planisphere. I knew not where we were, and the Canadian, too, his strength and patience at an end, appeared no more. Conseil could not draw a word from him, and fearing that in a dreadful fit of madness he might kill himself, watched him with constant devotion. One morning, what date it was I couldn't say, I had fallen into a heavy sleep towards the early hours, a sleep both painful and unhealthy, when I suddenly awoke. Ned Land was leaning over me, saying in a low voice, We're going to fly. I sat up. When shall we go? I asked. Tonight. All inspection on board the Nautilus seems to have ceased. All appear to be stupefied. You will be ready, sir. Yes. Where are we? Inside of land. I took the reckoning this morning in the fog, twenty miles to the east. What country is it? I don't know, but whatever it is, we'll take refuge there. Yes, Ned, yes, we'll fly tonight, even if the sea should swallow us up. The sea's bad, the wind violent, but twenty miles in that light boat of the Nautilus doesn't frighten me. Unknown to the crew, I've been able to procure food and some bottles of water. I'll follow you. But, the Canadian continued, if I'm surprised, I'll defend myself. I'll force them to kill me. We'll die together, friend Ned. I had made up my mind to all. The Canadian left me. I reached the platform on which I could with difficulty support myself against the shock of the waves. The sky was threatening. But as land was in those thick brown shadows, we must fly. I returned to the saloon, fearing and yet hoping to see Captain Nemo, wishing and yet not wishing to see him. What could I have said to him? Could I hide the involuntary horror with which he inspired me? No. It was better that I should not meet him face to face. Better to forget him. And yet, how long seemed that day, the last that I should pass in the Nautilus? I remained alone. Ned Land and Conseil avoided speaking for fear of betraying themselves. 
At six, I dined, but I wasn't hungry. I forced myself to eat in spite of my disgust that I might not weaken myself. At half-past six, Ned Land came to my room, saying, We shall not see each other again before our departure. At ten, the moon will not be risen. We will profit by the darkness. Come to the boat. Conseil and I will wait for you. The Canadian went out without giving me time to answer. Wishing to verify the course of the Nautilus, I went to the saloon. We were running north-northeast at frightful speed and more than fifty yards deep. I cast a look on these wonders of nature, on the riches of art heaped up in this museum, upon the unrivaled collection destined to perish at the bottom of the sea with him who had formed it. I wished to fix an indelible impression of it in my mind. I remained an hour thus, bathed in the light of that luminous ceiling, and passing in review those treasures shining under their glasses. Then I returned to my room. I dressed myself in strong sea clothing. I collected my notes, placing them carefully about me. My heart beat loudly. I could not check its pulsations. Certainly my trouble and agitation would have betrayed me to Captain Nemo's eyes. What was he doing at this moment? I listened at the door of his room. I heard steps. Captain Nemo was there. He had not gone to rest. At every moment I expected to see him appear and ask me why I wished to fly. I was constantly on the alert. My imagination magnified everything. The impression became at last so poignant that I asked myself if it would not be better to go to the captain's room, see him face to face, and brave him with look and gesture. It was the inspiration of a madman. Fortunately, I resisted the desire and stretched myself on my bed to quiet my bodily agitation. My nerves were somewhat calmer, but in my excited brain I saw over again all my existence on board the Nautilus, every incident, either happy or unfortunate, which had happened since my disappearance from the Abraham Lincoln, the submarine hunt, the Torres Straits, the savages of Papua, the running ashore, the Coral Cemetery, the passage of Suez, the island of Santorini, the Cretan Diver, Vigo Bay, Atlantis, the iceberg, the South Pole, the imprisonment in the ice, the fight among the pulps, the storm in the Gulf Stream, the Avenger, and the horrible scene of the vessel sunk with all her crew. All these events passed before my eyes like scenes in a drama. Then Captain Nemo seemed to grow enormously, his features to assume superhuman proportions. He was no longer my equal, but a man of the waters, the genie of the sea. It was then half-past nine. I held my head between my hands to keep it from bursting. I closed my eyes. I would not think any longer. There was another half-hour to wait, another half-hour of a nightmare, which might drive me mad. At that moment I heard the distant strains of the organ, a sad harmony to an undefinable chant, the wail of a soul longing to break these earthly bonds. I listened with every sense, scarcely breathing. Plunged, like Captain Nemo in that musical ecstasy, which was drawing him in spirit to the end of life. Then a sudden thought terrified me. Captain Nemo had left his room. He was in the saloon, which I must cross to fly. There I should meet him for the last time. 
He would see me, perhaps speak to me. A gesture of his might destroy me. A single word chain me on board. But ten was about to strike. The moment had come for me to leave my room and join my companions. I must not hesitate, even if Captain Nemo himself should rise before me. I opened my door carefully, and even then, as it turned on its hinges, it seemed to me to make a dreadful noise. Perhaps it only existed in my own imagination. I crept along the dark stairs of the Nautilus, stopping at each step to check the beating of my heart. I reached the door of the saloon and opened it gently. It was plunged in profound darkness. The strains of the organ sounded faintly. Captain Nemo was there. He didn't see me. In the full light, I don't think he would have noticed me. So entirely was he absorbed in the ecstasy. I crept along the carpet, avoiding the slightest sound which might betray my presence. I was at least five minutes reaching the door at the opposite side, opening into the library. I was going to open it when a sigh from Captain Nemo nailed me to the spot. I knew that he was rising. I could even see him, for the light from the library came through to the saloon. He came towards me silently, with his arms crossed, gliding like a specter rather than walking. His breast was swelling with sobs, and I heard him murmur these words, the last which ever struck my ear. Almighty God, enough, enough! Was it a confession of remorse which thus escaped from this man's conscience? In desperation, I rushed through the library, mounted the central staircase, and following the upper flight, reached the boat. I crept through the opening, which had already admitted my two companions. Let's go! Let's go! I exclaimed. Directly, replied the Canadian. The orifice in the plates of the Nautilus was first closed and fastened down by means of a false key with which Ned Land had provided himself. The opening in the boat was also closed. The Canadian began to loosen the bolts which still held us to the submarine boat. Suddenly a noise was heard. Voices were answering each other loudly. What was the matter? Had they discovered our flight? I felt Ned Land slipping a dagger into my hand. Yes, I murmured. We know how to die. The Canadian had stopped in his work. But one word, many times repeated, a dreadful word, revealed the cause of the agitation spreading on board the Nautilus. It was not we, the crew, were looking after. The maelstrom! The maelstrom! Could a more dreadful word in a more dreadful situation have sounded in our ears? We were then upon the dangerous coast of Norway. Was the Nautilus being drawn into this gulf at the moment our boat was going to leave its sides? We knew that at the tide the pent-up waters between the islands of Faroe and Lofoden rush with irresistible violence, forming a whirlpool which no vessel ever escapes. From every point of the horizon enormous waves were meeting, forming a gulf justly called the Naval of the Ocean, whose power of attraction extends to a distance of twelve miles. There, not only vessels, but whales are sacrificed, as well as white bears from the northern regions. It is thither that the Nautilus, voluntarily or involuntarily, had been run by the captain. It was describing a spiral, the circumference of which was lessening by degrees, and the boat, which was still fastened to its side, was carried along with giddy speed. 
I felt that sickly giddiness which arises from long-continued whirling round. We were in dread. Our horror was at its height. Circulation had stopped. All nervous influence was annihilated, and we were covered with cold sweat, like a sweat of agony. And what noise around our frail bark! What roarings repeated by the echo miles away! What an uproar was that of the waters broken on the sharp rocks at the bottom, where the hardest bodies are crushed and trees worn away, with all the fur rubbed off, according to the Norwegian phrase. What a situation to be in! We rocked frightfully. The Nautilus defended itself like a human being. Its steel muscles cracked. Sometimes it seemed to stand upright, and we with it. We must hold on, said Ned, and look after the bolts. We may still be saved if we stick to the Nautilus. He'd not finished the words when we heard a crashing noise. The bolts gave way, and the boat, torn from its groove, was hurled like a stone from a sling into the midst of the whirlpool. My head struck a piece of iron, and with the violent shock, I lost consciousness.' 